We are continuing our series that we have entitled Living in the Light of God's Invitations. What does it mean for us to recognize that God is not waiting for us to act first, but rather He has extended down through human history repeatedly over and over again an invitation to come to Him. And He has most made that invitation, or made that invitation most clear through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we come to Jesus, we hear the invitations of God, and Jesus made that explicit in so many different places in His life and ministry and in word. And so we want to be reading about and studying those invitations in this series. Now, John chapter 6 is one extended invitation. We're going to be looking at all of John 6, uh, or most of John 6, I should say, today. But I'm just going to be reading from verse 22 through verse 40 as we begin our time together. Would you join me as we read from John 6, 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I 
will raise him up on the last day. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. You know, when we think about the invitations of Christ, so often there's a temptation that's deep in the human soul that wants to earn our way into the presence of God or that wants to clean ourselves up before we get to hear the voice of God. So we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get our act together and make sure that we're doing all the right things. And and we think that's who God wants, the people that are respectable and clean and who've got their act together and who aren't too tired and the people who aren't thirsty, the people who aren't hungry. And yet what we have begun to see in this series is that's not true, right? In fact, in the last few weeks, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus is inviting the people who are weary and heavy laden. Hey, if you're overwhelmed by life, Jesus wants you to come to Him, right? Not the people who say, I've got plenty of energy for you, but the people who don't have energy to even make it one more step. Jesus wants them to come to Him. And last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus isn't looking for people who have their whole souls satisfied. Rather, He's looking for people who are thirsty to come to Him. Now, today, in the meditation and the reflection we're going to have on John chapter 6, we're going to see this, that Jesus is inviting us, in fact, to come to life itself, to come from a place where we are constantly dependent on the broken reality of the world we live in, through Him to have life everlasting. Specifically, we want to look at the claims of Jesus We're going to talk about how we consider Jesus or what do people do with the claims that Jesus has. And then we're also going to talk about what God is doing in the lives of people to invite them to come to Him, the call of Jesus. So that'll be our three main themes that we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at this idea of the claims of Jesus, the consideration of Jesus, and the call of Jesus of Jesus, and we'll be doing it throughout the book of John, uh, or uh, John chapter 6. So let's talk about the claims of Jesus. The most astonishing claim that Jesus makes in this entire event that he repeats over and over again is he says to people, I am the bread of life. Now, I had an old school Oklahoma grandmother, and when I would visit her, every single meal I would sit down to the table. She was a wonderful cook. She would make all kinds of wonderful food. And I grew up, as many of you know, in a rice-based culture. So, I, you know, it, it, it didn't bother me if there was no bread on the table. But my grandmother was a wonderful cook, and so she always wanted to make rolls or different kinds of specialty breads. And if she didn't, it didn't matter. She would always have a handy giant loaf of white bread that she would throw down on the table. And I, I'm just not a big fan of white bread. So I would eat all this other delicious food. And then she would look at me and she said, why aren't you eating the bread? And I said, well, I, I just don't like the bread. The rest of your stuff is really good. It's, this is just plain store-bought white bread, you know. And she would say, don't you know, bread is the staff of life. And I grew up hearing that all the time from my grandmother. Bread is the staff of life. Well, I don't really even know now what that means, okay? But... When Jesus says, 
I am the bread of life. He is saying something very specific to the Jewish people. And as you have seen in just our reading already, he's reminding them of some historic realities. Several things are going on. When Jesus gives this presentation in John chapter 6, if you were to go back to the beginning of John 6, several key events have happened that set up this moment of the claim. So let me give you some context, all right? First, Jesus has gathered a giant crowd around him. How big? Probably 25 to 40,000 people have come to hear Jesus teach. And there came a moment when they all realized that nobody had any food. And there's no stadium concessions standing by. And Jesus is in a remote location, and he does this amazing miracle where he takes five barley loaves and two fish, and he feeds not only the entire crowd that is there, but has leftovers for his disciples. Twelve giant baskets full of leftovers. So Jesus has created this amazing moment where he has fed people literally out of, out of nothing taking this tiny bit of food and somehow feeding this big crowd. The second thing you need to know about the context is that Jesus did this at the time of the Passover. At the time of the Passover. A time when the Jewish people would take unleavened bread and eat this unleavened bread as a sign of remembrance that they had been brought out and delivered out of Egypt. They'd been saved out of their slavery and their bondage and brought to a place where God was going to lead them through this desert wilderness and God would sustain them through this whole time and they'd been called out to become a holy people. So it was a time where they were remembering the fact that they were different from the world, they'd been set apart from the world, but they had also been called called out of this slavery into freedom, into a promised land, and as God's people, they had been sustained by God's very word. All right? So that's the context. And in the moment that that's happening, Jesus has fed all these people, right? And then they chase him down because you, people like it when you give them a free lunch, Right? And they wanted to see if there was another free lunch. So in the midst of that, that's the context where Jesus makes this claim, where he says, I am the bread of life. So let's look at seven things Jesus means when he says this, all right? And you find them all in John chapter 6. The first thing he says is, I am different from all other means of sustenance and pleasure, right? Bread brings us this reminder that, that God gives us good and delicious things. I don't know if you like those, the breads that you get when you go to restaurants and have all these specialty breads. We had some wonderful bread last night, this restaurant we went to on our elders retreat, and they had put all kinds of olives in one of the loaves and different things, and it was delicious, right? So bread isn't just nutritious, it's delightful, Right? Well, the children of Israel had been fed and sustained by God in the wilderness. So in John chapter 6, verse 49, Jesus says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. But even though they were sustained, what happened to all of them? They died. You could eat literal bread that comes down from heaven, and in the end, you will still die, right? Right? Have you ever thought about that? 
eat the best meal that you've ever had, and what's next? You're hungry <laughs> eventually, right? And it doesn't matter how good the food is or how well prepared it is or whether it's a Mediterranean diet or a keto diet or something else, guess what? I have news for you. You're all going to die. Right? Your diet is not going to save you. And Jesus is trying to say that to him. Guess what? It doesn't matter if you keep eating the best food, you're still going to die just like your forefathers did. And then he goes on to say, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So Jesus is saying, listen, there's something radically different from me. When I come to you and and you feast on me, Something is very different from every other form of sustenance and pleasure you have ever had. I'm not simply here to get you through to another day or to your next meal. I'm here to change your destiny. So he wants you to know that he's different. The second claim that he makes in this passage is that he is from God and that he came to give life to the world. He's a special bread. He's not from the best baker in town just over the hill there and whatever uh, town is close by, Capernaum or Nazareth or wherever location they're at around the Lake of Galilee, right? He's like, no, I came down from heaven. I am like manna. I'm just the true and better manna because I came not just to sustain you for a day, but to give you real life. So John 6, 33, we find Jesus there saying, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm the bread that actually makes you come from death into life, from slavery into freedom, from uh, emptiness and brokenness into wholeness and being satisfied and full. And Jesus goes on to clarify that claim by making another claim. He says, I give life, not just temporarily, but life forever, right? Beginning now, not just in the sweet by and by, but life forever. So you find Jesus saying this, John 6, 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Are you beginning to catch that he's repeating this a lot? Why do you think he's doing that? Because deep inside, as we're going to see when we talk about the consideration of these claims, there's this part of us that says, yeah, yeah, yeah but I don't really believe it or feel it or think it in this moment. So Jesus repeats this over and over again. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He he makes it really clear. I'm better than manna. (laughs) And then he goes on. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died. I'm different from manna. I'm different from every other loaf of bread you've ever had because those people died, right? Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus is making these stacked claims. I'm different. I'm from God. I'm always here to give life. And that life I'm going to give is not temporary. I'm the life forever, which also leads to this claim. I'm forever satisfying. I'm forever satisfying. Look at John 6.35, the last part. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I said this earlier. 
Have you ever had a meal that sustained you forever? That satisfied you forever? Now, I ate an amazing dessert last night, this amazing lemon pie, but I can tell you if Karen Halterman offers me a pie, I'm about to eat the whole thing. Because that pie was good, but it never satisfied me forever. Many of us approach God like He's necessary for life, but He's just not all that good. Uh, We were joking around on the elders' retreat that I use this phrase sometimes, the idea that God is a God of broccoli. He brings that which is nutritious and sustaining to us, but not very delicious. Jesus wants you to understand, that's not His claim. He didn't just come to save you, to give you ordinary life forever. He came to give you life that was full and satisfying, and endlessly, endlessly delicious. Endlessly satisfying, not just to your need for nutrition, but for the deepest longings of your soul. So Jesus is making this claim over and over again. He goes on to make it very clear that He is necessary. He's not an option that you can add on to your life. He's not some good thing that you can add to it. Now, I could have gone without eating that lemon pie last night, and and my waistline probably would have thanked me for it, right? I didn't really need that food to survive. I could skip a lot of meals, and I would still survive, right? But Jesus says, I'm not like that. If you don't have me, You'll never live. I'm radically and completely necessary. Look in verses 53 through 54. Jesus says to the people that are gathered around him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Just listen to that for just a second. It doesn't matter how alive and vibrant and healthy and nutritious you appear to the rest of the world or how fat and, and, and full of, of all the delicious meals of the world you are. You have never really lived, Jesus says, if you haven't feasted on me. It doesn't matter what you look like. You're not really alive. You have no life in you. He goes on to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus is not saying we are to turn into literal cannibals and eat literal parts and pieces of the body of Jesus Christ or drink his literal blood. What he's saying here is a metaphor to say, listen, unless you come to me and make me the reality that you consume and take into your life, you have no life forever. He's also speaking of the fact that he's going to take the elements of the Passover where there would be cups of wine that would be passed and bread that would be passed that would be symbolic of God's provision for his people. And he would say, unless in the same way, like you take these Passover elements to remind you of what God has done, guess what? If you don't feast on the reality of me, in the same way that you take that Passover reality into your life as an act of remembrance, if you don't do that in a daily, real, overwhelming way, 
you don't, you're, you're not alive. And you're not going to find eternal life. And you're not going to be raised up on the last day. Make no mistake. Jesus is making it very clear. He's not an add-on religion. He's not saying, I'm a good professor for you to follow my wisdom. I'm a good philosopher for you to adopt as your philosophy for life. He's saying, I am everything you have ever needed to really live. In fact, if you don't feast on me, you're not alive at all. And everything else that the world is feasting on, that they think is life-giving, will come to an end. So he's saying, I am the only true sustenance. He's saying everything else you've ever had is just, even, even the best meals are foretastes and shadows of the reality that I am. He's saying, guess what, folks? Everything else is just a picture, a type. It's not real in an ultimate sense. So you could have the best steak, the best lemon pie, the best bread, the best sides. You could have this amazing thing. And all of that is supposed to just drive you to the reality that there is a better meal ahead of you. Something more sustaining, more satisfying, more fulfilling, and that which will give you life forever that you will never, never be hungry again. So if you look in John 6, 55, Jesus makes it clear. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's saying, I'm the real deal. Everything else is just a picture at best. And then let's look at this last claim Jesus makes here. He says, I'm available to all who believe. All who believe, anyone who trusts in me or entrusts themselves truly. Uh, John 6, 47, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, pay attention. This is the truth, a deep truth, a real truth, a profound truth. Pay attention. He says, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, underlining it again. He's saying the same thing over and over and over again. Do you believe that I am that which can give you life now and forever? So, here's good news. And here's the invitation. If you come to Jesus to feast on Him, and you reject all other claims to be life-giving, And if you look around and you say, nothing else is ever going to satisfy me. Not ultimately. And if you say, the only way I get to live forever is to feast on Jesus. And I believe that He has made a way for me to be right with the living God now and forever. And in that, I get to feast on Him forever. Well, guess what? He says, you get eternal life beginning now. You get to come to life. I'm going to raise you up. Your body will be raised up on the last day. Okay. Now, if somebody said those seven things to you today, what would you think? 
I mean, think about it. Some guy says, hey, you know what? Every meal you've ever had, it was nothing. Every religious meal you've ever had, like the Passover, it, it was just a picture. I'm the real deal. The manna that even God poured down from heaven, those people still died. But you eat me and I will never fail to satisfy you and you will live forever. What would you do with that? How would you consider that? Let's talk about how people considered and thought about Jesus. And so uh, let's dial back the, the clock a little bit here in the passage. Go back to John 6, 24. And remember, I gave you the context. Jesus had fed 5,000 plus men plus their family. So probably 25,000 to 40,000 people that had been gathered. Jesus has fed them with five loaves, two fish, and then... Uh, after he fed them everything else, they kind of chase him around the Lake of Galilee because, hey, he is free lunch, right? And he had leftovers. So maybe at least we can get some of the leftovers. So John 6, 24 puts that in context. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not where they had, he had been the night before. By the way, Jesus had walked across the lake on the water if you read the John 6, uh, to catch up with his disciples, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And, and we go, well, that's great. They're looking for Jesus, right? Okay, I, I think that's a good thing. It's good when people go looking for Jesus. But let me just point out that multitudes came looking for Jesus. Literally, crowds of tens of thousands came looking for Jesus to satisfy their longings and their needs. Jesus points that out. John chapter 6, verse 26, when they show up, here's what he says to them. I, I, I'm telling you, he says, why you were seeking me. You're not seeking me because I can do something amazing from God. I can engage you in an eternal reality. He says, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You came because you're wanting another free meal. <laughs> Jesus just calls people out right away, right? And he says, by the way, don't be working. Don't do all this effort. They had to go all the way around the lake. He says, don't do the work for the food that perishes, but instead for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Don't pursue with your life that which is merely temporary and cannot satisfy you and will not result in eternal life. Multitudes come to Jesus looking for temporary things. Jesus, I'll believe in you if you fix this problem in my life. Jesus, I'll trust you if you satisfy this need. Give me a promotion. Give me that relationship. Bring my child back home. Whatever the, the longing of our heart is, we'll come to Jesus longing for him to meet those temporary things. And most of us, most of us are willing to use religion to get what we want. At the heart of all religion, man-made religion, is a negotiation with God. God, I'll be good, and then you have to protect me from disease. God, I'll be morally upright, and you have to protect my marriage. God, I will be, uh, I, I'll do whatever it is that you want me. I'll, I'll give 10% of my money so long as you keep increasing what the amount of money that's in my bank account. We think that there's a negotiation going on with God whereby we can manipulate him into giving us what we really want and he is never the object of our truest desire. 
Many, many people, most people, are willing to use religion to get what they want. John 6, 28, they asked Jesus, okay, okay, fine, uh, you want to have the religion talk. We, we get that you're, you know, you, you made us all at lunch yesterday, but now you want to talk about religion. <laughs> so what must we be doing to do the works of God? In other words, what do we have to do to get you to give us lunch again? Right? What's the price? So Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Stop thinking you can earn the satisfaction that only God can give you. He answers a different question. He says, you, you want to pursue me for lunch. I'm trying to give you something better than lunch. And he says, you need to recognize that the work of God is not about you trying to earn God's favor or negotiate or or with or manipulate God. Rather, you need to understand that God is in the business of freely giving this to you. And all you have to do is believe that the gift He's giving you is free and yours. Now, whenever you hear this, some people, they're not oriented to religion. Or maybe they're religious and they want to combine it with something else. So other people are willing to use politics or power to get what they want. This spirit, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, has invaded the American church in the 20th and 21st centuries. That what we really say out loud is that we trust God, but when we come, push comes to shove, we believe that we need earthly politicians and power managers to get us our security, our significance, and our satisfaction. We are perfectly willing to compromise the Word of God to pick up a corrupted person and say that they're the person who's really going to bring Christendom back into the U.S. What foolishness. That is. But it's not new. Look at this. If Jesus is the bread of life, and if he's going to give everybody free lunch and everything else, after he's fed 25, 40,000 people, whatever it is, some in the crowd figure out, hey, if he can feed all of us and there's leftovers, he can feed the entire land. And that seems like a good thing. He might even be able to do something about these dastardly Romans. So what's their solution? John 6.15. They want to come and try and force Jesus to be king. Isn't that crazy? They want to use politics and power to get what they really want. Jesus, feed us, starve the Romans. Jesus, if you satisfy us, then we won't have to pay taxes and everything else. And by the way, you can just whip up, you know, I mean, if you started with five loaves, I'm sure there are mathematicians in the crowd, right? They're like, okay, so wait, five loaves, two fish, that equals 40,000 lunches. And somebody's running an algorithm and trying to figure out what that means whenever you multiply that out enough times. So if we, if we gave him 100 fish and 200 loaves, I mean, he could feed, you know, do you see how people's minds work? you go, gosh, that's awfully foolish. We would never do this, right? Try and come up with earthly rulers to satisfy our souls. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. 
We've been doing this for a long time. Now, some people in the crowd, they're maybe not so religious or so political. They just demand proof. Hey, Jesus, we saw you do this yesterday. You want us to believe in you. Well, why don't you show us what you got again? Because maybe, maybe yesterday was a trick. Now, I don't know how you take five loaves and two fish and turn it into a lunch for 40,000 people. And then, and then, you know, but maybe you're the David Blaine of that time period. You do something spectacular. So show it to us again, Jesus, right? Verse 30 through 31. Jesus, they say to him, hey, uh, so if you want us to believe in you, what sign will you do so that we will believe in you? We can see you for who you really are if you show us one more time. What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, Jesus, why don't you make bread rain down from heaven for everybody? That sounds good. But they're misunderstanding the reality of God's work. See, Jesus' ultimate goal was not to feed people lunch. Have you ever thought that God's objective was to meet your physical and earthly desires? Oh, He's gracious to do that. Don't misunderstand me. Just like Jesus fed 40,000 people. But do you understand that's not His objective? His objective is not to get you lunch. And we can be like this crowd that misunderstands God's work and we demand, God, if I believe in you, you've got to come through with this thing that I want. And what we fail to realize is that the problem is He's what our souls actually want. So look at John 6.32. Jesus makes it clear. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, here it is, remember? He says, let me tell you the truth. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but God the Father will give you true bread from heaven. He says, I'm looking to give you something better than lunch. I'm the gift that God has given you that will bring you life forever. And in so doing, he ends up exposing the fact that their real desires aren't anything about God, but really this temporary physical desire. Their real desires are revealed. Look at John 6, 34. What do they say? <laughs> Sir, give us this bread always. We want lunch forever. You escaped when we tried to make you king. You're not really answering our questions about religion. Why don't you just satisfy us? Now, in any crowd of this size... <laughs> Preachers can tell you, Baptist preachers can tell you, in a crowd of 20, there's uh, 25 different opinions, right? And, and if you don't satisfy everybody's opinions, uh, some people are going to do what? Complain, <laughs> right? Imagine what happens when you tell 40,000 people that they're not going to get lunch. There's going to be some complaints, and they come up with different kinds of complaints so that they don't have to address who Jesus really is. So they come up with at least two main arguments that we see in this passage. And, and they're very interesting because they are opposite of each other. One of their complaints is that Jesus is too, theologians might say, imminent. He's too down to earth. 
He's too homey. He's somebody that we know. So he can't be the bread of life. In fact, that's exactly what they say. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, uh, the Jew, or it says there, that the Jews grumbled about Jesus. Why? What was it that was upsetting them? Was it the fact that he gave them lunch? No. It's the fact that he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He says, essentially, they, they began to get this. Wait a second. He's saying he's better than manna. He's saying that he's the sustaining reality of all of life. He's saying that he can give us life forever. And in fact, when our bodies die, he can raise them up from the grave. Wait a second. Who does this guy, this hillbilly from Nazareth, think he is? Right? They said, we, we know his daddy. We know his mom. We know which town he grew up in. How can he say that he is God's answer to the world's hunger? So one of the complaints the human race makes about Jesus is that he's too close to us. He's too much like us. He's taken on too much humanity. He's too ordinary to actually satisfy us. And I think today there's a lot of people that approach Jesus that way. Well... I needed a little bit more of a fireworks show. I needed a little bit more oomph in the God I want to believe in. He's, he's too ordinary, too real. God comes down to be incarnate in the form of a carpenter to suffer and die and to, to, to claim that he's doing so as our substitute before God. No, that's too ordinary and plain. I don't want a God who dies for my sin, a God who can bear uh, uh, my sins in his body, but also bleed and sweat and do all of these things. I don't want that. Are people still complaining about Jesus that way? But there's an opposite complaint, if that's not you. It's not that Jesus is too imminent, it's that he's too transcendent, the opposite of imminent. He's too spiritual, he's too godlike, he's too holy. I can't really understand him. He's not practical, he's not down to earth. All of this talk, I just want lunch, and now he's talking about bread of life. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. John 6, 51. Jesus says this, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Right? And we talked about this, that Jesus is saying, listen, you have to partake of me, and that's done symbolically within the church through our adoption of the Passover ceremony during communion when we partake of bread that symbolizes his body and wine that symbolizes his blood that demonstrate that in our faith we believe that Jesus gave his body to suffer God's wrath and our earthly punishment and all of the eternal weight of our sin was placed upon that body and that his blood was poured out to wash us clean and to forgive give us of our sins. And that seems too mysterious, too distant from ordinary life, not practical, not what I really need. Listen, Jesus, that's all fine, but don't you understand? My bank account is low. My relationships are broken. My job is not satisfying. My friendships need help and everything else. Just fix all the other things. Don't worry about satisfying my deepest longings. I just would like you to satisfy my greatest desires. None of us would ever approach Jesus 
like that. Right? So like the Jews, we get into arguments and we say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And the end result is that many people walk away. Many people walk away. What happened to the crowd? Well, it doesn't say everybody that he fed followed him around the lake, but let's say half of them did, and let's say it was twenty-five to 40,000 people, so somewhere between 12,500 and 20,000 people chased Jesus around the lake, and then he gives them this speech that says, I'm what you've actually been looking for. Don't come looking to me for lunch. Come looking for me to satisfy your soul's deepest longings. When many of the disciples hear this, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? See, many people don't want to listen to Jesus when he's talking about the things that really matter, the forever things. They want Jesus to talk about the things that they want to talk about. Who can listen to this in John 6, 66? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. How many were left? Well, if you keep reading, the crowd disappears, and it's probably roughly 12. From at least 12,000 down to 12. Now, that's how you know a preacher's really got the crowd, when he can knock almost his congregation down to leave only one person for every thousand that were there. See, few understand and accept and believe the claims of Jesus as He really is. And that's still true. Many people will come exploring Jesus, looking for Him to satisfy their desires. But in the end, He's too eminent, too transcendent, too difficult, too demanding, too all-encompassing. John 6, 67, as the crowd disperses and goes away, Jesus looks at the 12 and He says, do you want to go away? Do you want to go away as well? What do you think each of those guys was thinking in that moment? I suspect there was a very long pause watching everybody else leave, realizing they're not going to get a free lunch and that Jesus has a different and bigger agenda. And then Peter speaks up, right? Good old Peter. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Did you catch what he just said? I would rather eat your words even if my body goes hungry. They're all looking for lunch, Jesus. We're looking for something else. And we have believed and we have come to know that you 
are the Holy One of God. You are what God has sent into the world to bring life and satisfaction now and forever. So let me ask you this. When you think about Jesus, where do you fall in the crowd? Not where do you wish you fell, but where do you operate with the reality of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're struggling right now and you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you've got a religious answer quick to your tongue, but you know deep inside that really you're just hoping Jesus helps you win the lotto. Well, I have good news for you. See, what Jesus makes clear throughout this interaction is that God is at work. That your appetite, your desires, are not the ultimate deciding factor on your relationship with God. That in fact, there is a divine invitation, a divine calling of God that is happening and it is sovereign and it is good and it is God's way of bringing people to find out that Jesus is the joy and the sustenance that they have been longing for all of their lives. Go to John 6, 35, which is the key verse in this passage, which I've mentioned. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You come to me, and I'm going to satisfy you. But that phrase there is so important. Whoever comes to me. So who's going to come to Jesus? We've already seen the people who want mere religion and politics run away. The people who want Jesus to satisfy their earthly desires are going to flee what if there are people that God's at work in? What if Jesus is calling everyone who will believe in Him, who will trust themselves, uh, trust and entrust themselves to Him? Look at John 6.40, and you begin to see this invitation played out over and over again. Mixed in this discussion about the bread of life, Jesus begins to talk about the invitation, the calling of God that He's doing. He says, this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Who's being called to Jesus? Everyone who believes in and entrusts themselves to Him. But then Jesus clarifies. He says something else. He says, I'm calling everyone who has truly heard and learned from God the Father. If God the Father, in His sovereign will and in His sovereign ways through time and space, has spoken into your life, if God is speaking truth into your life, guess what? There's good news for you. Jesus is inviting you to Him. Everyone, He says, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Period. Some people like to act like, well, you know, if God the Father spoke to some people and speaks to other people and, and, then, 
and then, you know, then some people just, they're sovereign over their salvation and they get to decide whether or not they're going to, to uh, follow Jesus or entrust themselves to him. Brothers and sisters, that is not the biblical picture. Did you read what Jesus just said? Everyone who has heard from God the Father, everyone who's heard from God the Father will come to me. You know why that's good news? Because you and I have brothers and sisters and friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers, and we're not sure where they stand with Jesus in reality. But what if you had a God who's speaking His truth, His salvation over the world, and they will come to Jesus if God the Father speaks to them? Jesus makes it even clearer. He says, I'm calling, I'm inviting everyone that the Father is drawing or inviting to me. So he makes it even clear. So John 6, 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to Jesus unless God the Father has been at work in their life. Ever. The triune God of the universe is drawing people to the reality of the satisfaction and salvation of His Son. And He does this primarily through the agency of His Spirit, who takes the Word of God, the truth about Jesus, and applies it into each of our hearts. Or as Jesus is going to say here in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus imbues his words with the spirit of God, the life-giving spirit of God, and that working of God and the eternal plan of the Father comes to you and to me through the spirit of God. Ask yourself this. If you're here today, you believe everything that Jesus claimed about himself that we've been talking about today, you believe all of that. Ask yourself, why do you believe? The answer isn't because you're smarter. The answer isn't because you're more religious. The answer isn't because you've got your act together. The answer is because God the Father, over the time and space of human history, has so determined that you will be His child, that He has come to you and spoken to you through His Spirit and drawn you to His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why you believe what Jesus is doing. And that is the only difference between you and your neighbor who does not yet believe. Jesus says this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He has this encounter that's recorded there. He says, Nicodemus, unless, and there's the truly, truly, by the way, again, really, really, deep down sincere, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless there's a new life that comes in you. He goes on, uh, verses 5 and 6 of John 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless the Holy Spirit comes to you and gives you a new birth, brings you to a place of conversion, what theologians call regeneration, where you're brought from death into life, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
How does somebody come to believe that Jesus is the all-satisfying reality that their souls have always been longing for and which can satisfy them forever and which can bring them into eternal life? The answer is that the Spirit of God has invited them into the reality of who Jesus is and said, come feast on the Son. And that's good news for every person you love who doesn't yet believe in Jesus. And you can cry out for God's Spirit to speak those words into their life, in their heart, and in their mind to bring them from death to life. And here's good news for you and me that we can close with. The call of Jesus is certain and lasting. It's certain and it's lasting. What do I mean by that? It's infinitely trustworthy. It never goes away. It's there forever. Or maybe Jesus puts it better. I'm certain he does. John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone who has been given to Jesus by the Father, from all Races, tribes, tongues, and people from all generations, those who God has appointed and said, this, my son, is your bride. I'm giving you her. They belong to Jesus, and he will never cast them out. He goes on to say, and this is the will of him who sent me, the will of the sovereign God of the universe, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here's some good news for you and me. Our salvation is not contingent upon the wavering of our faith, the weakness of our will, the certainty of our morality or ethics. Death and none of that can assure you and me of salvation. None of it. All we've got is the fact that God Himself has said, I will never cast you out and I'm never, ever going to lose you. When you come to feast on me, you're mine forever. Isn't that beautiful news? Let's thank God for that in prayer. Oh, Father God, speak now these same eternal words of Your Son into our lives. Give us wisdom to understand them and apply them. Let us feast deeply upon the reality of your Son. Forgive us for seeking you out as some form of manipulation to get what we truly want, as if you could be less than satisfying. Thank you for giving us life forever. Thank you for calling us and drawing us to be your children. Thank you for giving us that hope. When we go out to share good news that you are the one who is speaking, your, you, your father has made a plan and he has given people to you and we may not know who they are, but your spirit is at work drawing them to you. So father, grant us that assurance, that peace. If there are any that are even now being made aware that, that they don't really feast on you. May this moment be the hour, the day of their salvation. Oh, Jesus, be the satisfaction of our souls. We ask this in your name, to your Father, by the work and power of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen.